0: All right, if you want to go ahead and make your way back to your seats. So I don't know if you um, remember or not, and if you're new, you, you wouldn't necessarily, but for the last few months, we've been walking with Jesus through Luke's gospel. But a particular part of Luke's gospel where um, Jesus is leaving Judea, which is like the northern part of of Israel, where he kind of lived his life, where he was born, where he did his ministry, where all of his disciples were from. And he is making his way to Jerusalem in the southern part of Israel, where he's going to go to the cross, right? Where he's going to, for the last time, enter into the city, be crowned, and and actually just a few moments after our story today, um, be heralded as the the coming king, uh, and then Um, uh, underneath that same banner of the, the King of the Jews, and then three days later, rise again, and, and really set in motion everything that is our life today. But in between this Judean-like ministry of Jesus and this Jerusalem, um, really capstone of Jesus' life, there's this place, literally and metaphorically called Samaria. And Jews went around Samaria because Samaria was a place of muddled and mixed faith, muddled and mixed history. It was a place where, um, because of of ethnic and racial tensions, because of religious tensions, um, a, a, a... Orthodox Jew, uh, somebody who was trying to be faithful to know and follow God would avoid this place. But Jesus instead takes his disciples straight through it into to Jerusalem, but not just on a direct path through it. In fact, the way Luke tells his narrative, Jesus meanders through from chapters 9 and a half to 19 and a half, almost um, two-thirds of Luke's gospel, Jesus is in this place that every other Jew would avoid. He's in the place of muddled and mixed faith, muddled and mixed traditions, people of life, of what maybe what we would think of as real life. Judea is a place where everybody thinks the same, believes the same to some extent. Jerusalem is a place where everybody comes together, so it's metropolitan, it's a little more mixed, but it's still primarily a seat of faith. But Samaria is this mixed place, this muddled place. And Jesus, in some way, takes his disciples through this in order to help them understand how to live with him in the midst of such a place. At least that's the way we've been looking at it in Luke's gospel. And so today we actually get to this, to the final story in the story of, in the Samaritan lands, in this, this, this trek through here. But if you remember a couple weeks ago, um, uh, when Dylan, who by the way is now married, Dylan Allison, got married on Friday. woohoo yeah, I don't know why they're not here. Um... When Dylan was talking, the story that Dylan told us, Jesus said these words. He says, when the Son of Man comes, when the Messiah comes, when the one that we're looking for comes to establish the kingdom of God, will he find faith on earth? Will, when God's kingdom is apparent, will there be those, those who believe and trust that God is acting on their behalf, that God is true, good, and beautiful, that God is just in bringing justice? Will there be persons who live their lives with such conviction and assurance that those things are true? Will there be people who see what is overlooked, dismissed, darkened by shadows of sin and selfishness, slavery and systems? Will they see, when the Son of Man comes, when the kingdom of God comes, will they see the very presence of God for, in, and through others, including themselves? Will they see that? Will there be those who have faith that sees? People who go about daily life fully assured of what they hope for, entitled to the very thing that they hope for, but entitled by nothing less than the spoken and enacted covenant of God himself. Not their own abilities, not their own efforts, but the action and spoken word of God on their behalf. Will they live with such assurance of the things that they hope for? Will there be those who live their everyday life with conviction? An internal testimony and proof that, what, that, is, that true life is more than what they see. That the actual real things of life are often unseen. Love, affection, motives, emotions, spirit. That will they believe with conviction, proof of conviction of their own hearts who are broken and mended, healed and filled and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Will there be those who live with such assurance of the things hoped for? Assured and entitled to it because God said it and God acted. Convicted because in their heart dwells what is unseen, the Spirit of God. Will there be those who live such a way? Each of the parables that follow in Luke's, Luke 18, um, each of the parables and stories that follow, is Jesus showing us, Luke showing us in the interactions of Jesus, what faith on earth actually looks like. But there is a positive answer to that. And there's, there's a positive answer to it that we can actually visibly see, even if faith is conviction of things unseen. Giving us a picture of what faith we are to look for and encourage in one another. Again, if you look at Luke's gospel, like the story of Luke after the last one we told, here's what we see. That Jesus has given us a picture of the faith that we're to look for, the faith we're encouraged in one another. Not faith in mere actions, even devout ones like the Pharisee, but faith that truly sees ourselves and therefore doesn't miss God in others. We're to aspire to have faith that is humble and free as children in the security of a loved family, Jesus beckoning the young ones to come to him, rebuking those who would keep such children from his presence. That faith that, uh, that releases expectations and ideas of what a good life is. Faith that is liberated from the grip of mammon to follow the one who looks at us and loves us and gives life true and forever to us, as the story of the rich young ruler reminds us. A faith modeled for us that would suffer and die for even the faithless. Jesus showing us his faith, that where he's going through Samaria is to the moment of faith itself, where he gives his life for those who would have no faith in him. Faith that would cry out with trusting honesty for eyes to truly see. The blind man, literally all of us, when ask what we want is we want to see. That's what we want. Faith that would climb a tree to see God with us and for us and respond to the freedom of his befriending with repentant generosity. That's the story that actually precedes our story today. The story of you might know him as Zacchaeus, a tax collector, the one who, as we talked about even last week, um, in Jesus' parable, becomes the true life example of the one who prayed, "God, make atonement for me, a sinner," and who God sees him, befriends him, invites himself into Zacchaeus' life. As Zacchaeus responds with a generosity beyond repentance, there's repentance, absolutely. But he went beyond it. He went, he went to give more beyond what he had been given. And so our story today, the verses that proceed it say this. and Jesus said to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man, same word, same phrase that was used um, in Luke 18.8, came to seek and to save the lost. This is where our final story of Sumerian journey with Jesus begins. At the unmistakable site of the Son of Man's arrival. So Jesus asked in Luke eighteen eight, when the Son of Man comes, where there'll be faith. And we see in, the, in Zacchaeus' story that yes, there will be those who live by faith. It just happens to be the faith of a tax collector. <laughs> Maybe the one we'd least expected. God's kingdom has come observable faith is being demonstrated in the most unlikely places. The enemy, the the rebel, the the traitor, Zacchaeus, now a friend and a benefactor to his people, one who took from them, now blessing them. So it's no wonder that today's story begins with these lines in Luke 19, verse 11, which is, if you want, you can follow along in your, your Bibles with me. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. While Jesus had their attention... While Jesus had their attention. Why? Because Zacchaeus had repented. (laughs) Zacchaeus had responded to the gospel. He had demonstrated faith. While Jesus had their attention, and because they were getting close to Jerusalem by this time, the story is coming to an end. His journey is coming to an end. And the expectation was building that God's kingdom would appear any minute. And the expectation is, okay, now all of life's gonna change. Have you ever experienced that? A moment where you witness the faith of someone else God working in the life of someone else, and you thought, this is it. This is going to change my life and our life and the whole community's life. Everything's about to change. We've all been there, right, to some degree. Maybe it was us that the Lord acted in. Maybe it was the response of our hearts to God with us. And we thought everything was about to change. The kingdom was going to break open. Our whole life would be different. Knowing this, Jesus tells this story. Jesus gives us a final story to reveal what we are expected to do with our faith, what faith leads us to do, and what we've been given in life with God. Verse 12, there once was a man descended from a royal house who needed to make a long trip back to headquarters to confirm his kinship and return. But first, he called ten servants together, gave them each a gracious and generous sum of money and instructed them, operate with this, put it to use because I'm coming back. So we have in this story one who's from a royal lineage, and this is not uncommon in first century, that even though it was clear and evident that he had a royal lineage, that he was a part of the royal history, that it was unmistakable who his birth parents were, and all those kind of things, there was still a level of being um, uh, some sort of affirmation that was required for that kingship to happen, especially under the Roman rule. Like This was actually a story that took place in real life, in first century with Herod and then his sons, like this actually happened. They would leave and go back to Rome to make sure and affirm their kingship of Judea and of Israel and of those places and then return. And so this is what's happening. So he's telling a story in a common way that everybody would know, right? This This is a real life story. Like this is like any real life story they would know. And so this man who's from royal lineage, who has a kingship, who has those who are following him and believe in his kingship, he's had some sort of interaction and rule over these people to an extent, but now it's time for him to be confirmed as the true king of the place. So he brings in those who have followed him, his servants, and he does something truly generous. He gives each of them a large sum of money. Minus, Minus is what it would probably say in your translation. It's essentially... It's essentially a hundred days wages, a hundred days wages. It gives them each this kind of like sets them up for almost a half year, right? Like sets them up for a good amount of time. And he does so with generosity. There was nothing, they did nothing to earn it. Each each one is given the exact same thing. They're given the exact same sum of money. And then he tells them to do something with it, what they've been given, given this abundance of, of living, essentially. He says, operate with this. The the word operate with this in the original language has this connotation of put it to use in the way that I would. Do business with it like you would do business with me here. Put it to use in the way that I would. Do business with it in the way that I would do business with it, the way you would do business with it if I was still right here with you. Operate with it. Why? Because I'm coming back. Use this like I'm actually still here with you. Put it to good use. But in verse 14, we see that not everybody was on board. But the citizens there hated him. So they sent a commission with a signed petition to oppose his rule. We don't want this, and in the, in the Greek, it's actually an expletive, um, to rule us. We don't, like, there's, this is, again, pretty common, right? Though his, this man's lineage is evident, his kingship already somewhat attested to because they servants, people following him, that still doesn't mean that everybody was for him and for his rule. And that those, they didn't just not want his rule, like, eh, I'd prefer this guy not to be my king. They were actually actively against it. So they sent people to go with him all the way to Rome, where the confirmation would happen, to argue on behalf of the other citizens that they don't want this bleep ruling them, right? Jesus, yes, Jesus, Jesus used an expletive, but... Um, which that may be enough to rock everybody's world, but like we won't, we won't, we won't st- stay on there. So, but he's painting this picture, right? And again, it would have been a common picture, especially if for a picture of a of a Jew in the first century, when Herod and his troop went off to go, and his ch- kids went off to go decide if be, um, if they were going to rule. I'm sure plenty of Jews, especially the zealots, went with them to try to make sure that they didn't come back as rulers of the Jewish people, right? So again, this is a common story, right? Not, not. Crazy and out of the way. But Jesus is painting a picture to help us kind of see this is the world in which his servants were meant to act. A world in which his kingship, the kingship of the one that they served, is going to be in conflict with those even in their own kingdom. Even in the place where the king is coming back to rule. Right? That there's conflict. That serving and being faithful to the king is going to take place in the midst of conflict. And so in verse 15, we skip over the whole everything that happens outside of it and we come right back to when the royal son came back, bringing the authorization of his rule. He called those 10 servants to whom he had given the money to find out what business they had transacted. It, again, your translation may read a little different, but the idea is not what they had done with their money, but literally what they had been up to while he was gone, what sort of way they had put to use the things that they had been given. That's what he wanted to see. It's not a matter of success. It's a matter of faithfulness, as we'll see. The first said, master, your gift multiplied, producing 10 times more. Not I did this and look what I did. But he said, hey, listen, that money you gave me, that sum of money you gave me, that, that life, abundant life that you gave me, I used it. I put it to use. and I've got 10 times more of it than when you left. How incredible is that? And what does the the now king say? He says, good servant, great work. Because you've been faithful, not because you've been successful, not because you've had 10 times more, because you've been faithful to put to work what I gave you, put to use what I gave you. In this very small thing, this small life of yours, this 100 days of, of abundance. Now I'm making you governor of 10 towns. The second said, master, your gift has multiplied five times more. Again, what multiplied? Did his work multiply? Did his efforts multiply? These things? No, the gift that he was given multiplied. He simply used it as it was meant to be used, as the king told him to. And when he used it, it multiplied. And the king said, now I'm putting you in charge of five towns. The king expected faithfulness, putting to use what had been given, not success. We don't we like there's no compare and contrasting these people. Like we read it in a very uh, Western economic like hierarchical way, but like Jesus is not trying to say, hey, this person did better than this person. He's saying, no, listen, these people put to use what God was given to them, and it multiplied. And both of them were called faithful, and both of them received more for what they were given. Not more luxury. Not more satisfaction, not more uh, things that they, material possessions, what were they given more of? Their reward was was more responsibility. They became governors of five towns and ten towns. They were faithful in what they've been given, their life. And now they're given charge over others' lives. That's a pretty incredible responsibility, isn't it? They were given charge to lead, help, and serve others, to live in the way of the king. They had proven that they could live in the way of the king, demonstrated that they could live in the way of the king. Their faith had showed that they walked in the way of the king. And what did the king give them? Influence over others to do the same. That's what they were given. That was a reward for faithfulness, not success, but for faithfulness. But that's just the first two. Remember there were 10. But somehow somehow seven of them are gonna get left out. Verse 20, the next servant said, master, here's your money, safe and sound. I kept it hidden in the cellar. To tell you the truth, I was a little afraid. Um, I know you have high standards. You take what you don't deposit and you reap what you don't sow. Now that sounds to us like a pretty offensive thing, right? And it kind of is a little bit, but here's what the servant is saying. Say, hey, listen. I took what you were given, but to be honest, I wasn't 100% sure you were coming back. Because listen, there's a whole delegation that went out, and listen, while you're gone, like the delegation that went, there was a whole slew of them that stayed that didn't want you to rule. So it's kind of a 50-50 shot of like, is your way the way? Will you come back? Will you not come back? Is this thing gonna work out the way it's not gonna supposed to work out? Like they like so, So what I did. Because I didn't, listen, I didn't want to offend you. I didn't want to mess with you. I didn't want to actually get back and say like, hey, like I just turned my back on you completely, right? I took what you were given and I, and I made sure that nobody could take it. The faith that you had, like nobody else could get it. Like I believed in you enough in who you really were enough and guarded it against all the things that might take that belief away, that might, might pull me away from that belief. And I kept it really safe and really tight. Because listen, in truth, like, I mean, you're kind of a powerful guy and you can, you, can, you can go get things that you want, even if they're not yours. And listen, again, this sounds offensive, but, but essentially what he's saying is like, hey, like you're like the Gauls or the Vikings or any sort of like nomadic raider in the first century. Like when you want wealth, you go take it. You have the power to do so. That you're known not for like one who cultivates life through generosity and through living and forming a kingdom that flows and works in a certain way towards justice, but you're one who just goes and gets what you want when you want it, right? That's what, that's what he's saying. And in the first century, that would have been somewhat of somewhat a, uh, a compliment, even if it wasn't true at all in anything that we know of the story of the king, right? Was the king not generous? He was generous, right? Even to this servant. He gave, him, he gave the servant not what was the servant's already, but what was his, He told the servant not merely to go hide things, not to use it, but to use it in a way that actually fit with his plans for goodness and beauty and justice that would in turn multiply just as it did for the other servants. And so while this servant, he does a couple things. He shows that he has no faith, or at least it's not no faith. Really, it's just a nearsighted faith. It's a faith that says, mm, I don't really know the long-term game of this and what it's going to play out, so I'm not really willing to risk everything that I've been given and be willing to risk if I step out with what I've been given and lose some of it, that I won't be in trouble for it. So it's a short-sighted faith. It's a near-sighted faith. A blind faith is what Peter would call it. And so he lacks faith, or at least a blind sided faith, and... He does nothing of influence on the king's behalf with his own life, with what he's been given, with the gifts he's been given. And so the king replies, and this is going to sound really harsh, especially to American ears, especially to to us at this time in the world. The king replied this He says, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. So just listen. He calls him a wicked servant, and we don't like that, right? Because we don't want to be called wicked. But two things are happening. One, he says, I'm condemning you with your own words. So what, what condemns this man? His own words, not his actions, his own words. What he says, he thinks is true of the king. It's not true, right? His own words condemn him. But then he calls him wicked. And wicked is meant to be offensive. It's meant to kind of prick us because wicked literally means you're just like the ones who protested me and called me the expletives. You're in the same camp. Doing nothing with what you've been given was the same is if you would come on the the journey with me and tried to get me to not be king. You're wicked. You're against me. Like hiding what I've given you, trying to protect what I've I've given you from the world is the same as opposing me. It's, it's it's, It's pretty striking. It should be striking. It's meant to be striking. And so the king says, if you experience me as unjust, if what you said was really true, He doesn't say, I am unjust. He says, if you experience me as unjust, knowing me to take advantage of people, requiring more than I give, which again, the king has done nothing of that, right? Even in the story, right? He's not required more than he's given. He's given them all that he has, what he has, and required only for them to use what he gave them. But he says, if you really experienced me that way, why didn't you at least invest your money with the crooked securities so I would have gotten a little interest on it? banking with interest at that time in a Jewish community was illegal. So when it says bank, we think, oh great, it's a, it's a normal thing. No, to put it in the bank would actually be something to be against the law, the Jewish law to do, to charge interest against your neighbors, to charge interest for something that wasn't yours. Like, so he's like, hey, listen, if I'm crooked, then act like a crook. Do something like that. If that's truly how you experience me. But that's not true. So that's why the man didn't do it. But then the king said to those standing there, Take the gracious gift from him and give it to the servant whose gift multiplied 10 times. And of course, we assume that the, those standing there are at least the other seven who hadn't gotten in, maybe even the one who had had five, maybe a few other people. They're all like, but wait a minute, master. He's already got 10, 10 times more than he started with. They see the, the king who says, hey, listen, you, you wicked servant, I'm going to condemn you by your own words. Like if you're gonna think of me as one who is super punitive and takes what's not mine, then at least act like act like that. Like live that out. Like let it play all the way out in your life. If that's the, if that's the faith in me you have, then then let that play out. But but I know that's not true, and it isn't true. And so therefore now I'm gonna take what I've what I've given you. I'm gonna give it to the one who has more. And in, and then everybody around says that's so unfair, right? Like kids, right? Like. You know, I mean, just think some, some kids got a giant pile of ice cream and the kid with the little ice cream gets in trouble. This is not a good analogy. Right. This is not how the story is actually working out. But just picture this. Right. And so the kid with the little ice cream gets his ice cream taken away and gives it to the kid with a giant bowl of ice cream. And we're all like, that is so unjust. But in reality, they're missing the, like those screaming that are missing the true injustice. Because what did the king not do? Well, the king didn't jail the wicked servant for not following his commands. That's what would have been expected at minimum. He was given something to use. He didn't use it in the way he was told to use it. At minimum, he would expect it to be jailed, put into servitude for not following the king's orders. Or even more common would have been excommunicated for his unfaithfulness, his lack of loyalty to the king for wondering if the king would come back or not come back the demonstration of a lack of loyalty he should have been excommunicated that's what would have everyone would have expected in this telling of the story or even more likely he would have been killed for offending the king for saying something untrue of the king's character he offends the king he shows that he has no loyalty to the king he doesn't do what the king wants and yet, all that is done is what was given to him is taken and given to somebody else. And everybody screams about the unfairness of the one who had more getting more. When the actual unfairness, injustice, was the graciousness that the king bestowed upon the unfaithful wicked servant. That's what should have been unfair. That's the only thing that was actually unfair in the entire story. That he was gracious towards the one who was unfaithful. And then the king says this in verse 26. The king said, that's what I mean. Take a risk, put to use your gift and get more than you ever dreamed of. Listen, I'm giving this little, this small amount to another who has a lot because this is the way my kingdom works. If you put to use what I've given you, if you risk it in faith, step out in faith, do business in life in faith, in the way that I've given you, you get so much more. But if you play it safe, you end up holding the bag. But as for these enemies of mine who petitioned against my rule, bring them here and slay them before me. Now we get really uncomfortable. So, what's lost in this story? What does the one who played it safe lose? What did he lose? opportunity for influence, life more than himself. He didn't lose his life, but he lost life that was more than him. He lost an abundance of life. That's what's at stake. His life was reduced now just to his life, to only his life. And while that may not sound so bad to us today when we live in a culture and a time and place where it's all about us, in truth, in history, every person in every culture throughout history has been more concerned about with the legacies we leave, the life that we leave beyond ourselves than with just the simply what we can do in our own life. And so it is a loss, a true loss for the, lack, the one who lacked faith, whose faith was so nearsighted that he forgot who the king was and that what he had was not his own, but was the king's. He lost out and his life got shrunk to just him, to just him. That's a misery. In antiquity, that's a misery. That's not a blessing. That's not freedom. That's misery. But what was gained? What was gained in this story? Faithfulness leads to a life of more influence than we could ever imagine. A life of more responsibility, of being a part of some kingdom that's greater than us to degrees that we could never imagine the servant, now a governor, right? I mean, just think about that. The one who was tending the, tending the sheep, cleaning the stalls, fixing the, the mill, now a governor of 10 cities. All because he used what was not his, but was given to him. The life of the king in a way that the king desired. But notice what's not done. What's not done is nobody responds to the king's saying, "Go get those who are against me and slay them." Nobody gets up and goes and grabs them and brings them before him and does it. In fact, if you look in your text, what happens right after this? Do you know? Right after verse 28 or, or 27. And when he had said these things, he being Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Do you know what's about to happen? Jesus enters Jerusalem. The king, in just a moment, he's going to get on a donkey. He's going to ride through the streets of Jerusalem. Palms are going to be waved down. They're going to sing, Hallelujah, the king. God's king has come. His kingdom is coming. The king's going to come. And who's going to be slain? The king. Who's going to slay the king? The ones who are opposed to him? The king's going to lay his life before those who are against him. He's going to be slain on their behalf as much as on ours and for those who are with him. Because that's who the king is. That's how he responded to the wicked servant, and that's how he responds even to the ones who hate him. That's what faith looks like. That's what the way of the king looks like. A willingness to take what is his, his life, and to risk it, not not merely for the gain that he experiences, but for the sacrifice that it requires. So that he might have, again, just as an example to some degree of what we get, influence that goes well beyond what we could ever imagine. That's why we're here today, 2,000 years later, still talking about this king. So Jesus leaves us before he goes to the cross with this story that's meant to fill our imaginations. That we're meant to go back over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in our heads. To call us into what faith really is. What we're meant to do with a life of faith. That are meant to take what God gives us, what he's given us, graciously given us. Not what we've earned, not what we figured out, but what he's given us in himself and put it to good use. To live a life in a way that lines up with what the king desires and organized. And to see the abundance that comes out of that. An abundance that's not merely success, but an abundance that is influence, right? That goes generation after generation that allows us to be a part of the kingdom much grander than ourselves. The reeds. Each one of them have been ones who put to work what God's given them. I mean, a testimony of this story right amongst us. They've invested in their community and in us, all that God has given them, without hesitation. And they depart our presence, having multiplied their gifts in us. What you leave us with will continue to grow and multiply forever. That's what Jesus says, your fruit that lasts forever. So let's do this. You thought we were done with you, but you we're not. We want an opportunity just as a faith family. We've got to express our gratitude in some way, but now I want to express it in a way, uh, gratitude for your faith specifically, for the investment that you've made in us, and to bless you as you continue to show us and others as your influence expands because of your faithfulness in this small thing of Christ City, how to live by faith through Jesus. So I'm going to ask you guys one more time to come up here and this time, I'm going to ask all of us, anybody that want to, to come and just lay hands on the reeds and to pray for them. We're just going to spend the next few moments just praying together as a faith family. So reeds, if you don't mind coming on up.